The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In one speech he gave after the war was over, Frederick Douglass told a largely white audience, You are the children of Abraham Lincoln. We are at best only his stepchildren. He also called Lincoln preeminently the white man's president. But in another speech, he had called Lincoln emphatically the black man's president. Did Douglass change? Did Lincoln change? Or were the two both connected and separated by their views on slavery and race? We'll explore the fascinating relationship between these two American icons with James Oakes, author of The Radical and the Republican, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the Triumph of Anti-Slavery Politics, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today late uh, in the autumn of 2010, a cold November afternoon here in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, but not consuming the university's resources or speaking on behalf of the university, and I know my guest likewise will speak for himself to get the legal things out of the way. The uh, talk these days on campus is of the uh, dramatic announcement made uh, recently by the president of the University of North Carolina system, of which East Carolina is one component, um, that faced with 15% cuts uh, throughout the system next year, it might be more effective to simply close one campus altogether and let the others carry on. A brilliant stroke uh, because it's politically impossible, but it will terrorize the state legislators from each of the component campus uh, areas into realizing that their anti-tax rhetoric might come home and destroy their community uh, when the local university is, is closed. So we'll see uh, what effect that produces. But these are grim times in higher education as uh, legislators and taxpayers alike find ways to cut back what they can give us. Uh, and so here I am uh, in my uh, not particularly spacious office here on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the East Carolina campus, uh, I suppose using the, the bandwidth required for the internet-related telephone, but otherwise 
not taking up the taxpayers' uh, resources, simply adding to our collective store of knowledge by bringing to you, the listener, somebody who knows something interesting about the Civil Wars we do each week, uh, which I hope the taxpayers would consider a service and something they're, uh, for which they're getting their money's worth. Speaking of getting one's money's worth, you're welcome to contribute to the show by uh, using PayPal, the miracle of PayPal. The address for the show is civilwartr at aol.com, and you can send a contribution here, and that will be used to defray the cost of books used uh, for the show. Sometimes we get them from the school library. Sometimes I go out and buy them if the library doesn't have them because they took a 20% acquisitions budget cut last year, and Civil War books are not as common as they used to be. Uh, it's one doom and gloom item after another, unfortunately, in today's higher education world. But uh, here at Civil War Talk Radio, all is well for the day. We've got a very interesting uh, book to discuss this afternoon. There will not be a live show next week if you're going to be in the area, for some reason, of Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be speaking there at the Civil War uh, and Reconstruction in North Carolina conference. It's actually a joint meeting of the North Carolina Literary and Historical Association. And uh, Mark Bradley and I will be on between 3.30 and 4.30 if you want to come and listen. Uh, Vernon Burton will be speaking that evening. Uh, he's been on the show a couple times, and it should be a, uh, a useful event. So uh, keep that in mind. The following week, I will be in Gettysburg at the Lincoln Forum uh, that week, and there will be no live show, but hopefully I'll be meeting new interesting people to invite to the show for uh, next season. And then there's Thanksgiving week after that. So we'll return in December with Elizabeth Pryor uh, talking about Robert E. Lee and then uh, Jennifer Weber talking uh, about her previous book on Copperheads in the North and uh, discussing her next work, which I look forward to hearing about. And we've got some interesting things coming up for the spring season as well. A book by an economist, uh, I've lately been reading several books on history written by economists, and it's just shocking how little they know about the past. Uh, the, the the economist standard tool, as, as I've come to understand it, is the assumption uh, when uh, faced with the, the desert island scenario, the, the economist and the engineer and the physicist, the other two come up with plans to open the canned food supply that they have without a can opener, and the physicist will use uh, physical principles, and the engineer will use the power of sunlight or something. The economist simply solves a problem instantly. Step one, assume we have a can opener, and uh, the problem is solved. So it is with uh, the economists that, that I've been reading lately talking about history. We'll see if we do any better uh, uh, next year as we, we have some of them on. Well, uh, today, uh, not an economist. Oh, one last plug before diving in. Uh, the coolest thing ever related to the show continues to be just that. It is the new website, www.impedimentsofwar.org. It's all one word, impediments of war. Uh, Mark Gaffney has, on his own time, set this up on behalf of the show, and it lists who's been on, gives you links to the past shows, and you can find them without having to guess which link to click on, and it links you to World Talk Radio. It's uh, uh, it's very, very handy, and I highly recommend it. 
Well, today we have, uh, as said earlier, as our guest, James Oakes, uh, author of The Radical and the Republican. Uh, Jim, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for uh, joining us on the show today. This is uh, last time you and I talked, we were in uh, in a van rolling across the endless flat miles of northern Illinois between conferences. Uh, how are things going for you? Uh, it's a cold fall day here, too, just as it is in, uh, in North Carolina. But uh, I'm busy at work, sitting in my office. I'm actually uh, t- tell our officers where, where here is. Where are you working? Oh, I'm at the Graduate Center of the City of University of New York. I, it is located at 34th Street and 5th Avenue. I look out my window and stare up at the Empire State Building uh, across the street. Well, that, that, that pretty much beats anything Greenville has to offer. Uh, well, maybe, uh, maybe not. But, <laughs> I see a lawn once in a while. <laughs> uh, there is that, but uh, wow. Well, how long have you been there? I've been here about 10 years. And where were you before that? Before that, I was at Northwestern University. Before that, I was at Princeton University. And uh, before that, I was in graduate school at Berkeley. Uh, so uh, a, a very well uh, well established uh, pedigree there, we'll say. Uh, uh, a number of interesting places to be. Now, this... Um, uh, the book I'm looking at here, The Radical and the Republican, uh, came out in uh, 2007, I believe. Right. And I thought I'd start asking you uh, possibly the least favorite question you could get about this book, uh, which is... Why did you write it? <laughs> I'm sorry? Why did I write it? Why, well, you know, I, that question answers itself, because it's a really, uh, really interesting book to read, one that I, I very much enjoyed. But the... There are other books. Uh, uh, John Stouffer's book, Giants, that looks at uh, Douglas and Lincoln. Uh, Paul Kendrick and Stephen Kendrick wrote Douglas and Lincoln, How a Revolutionary Black Leader and a Reluctant Liberator Struggled to End Slavery and Save the Union. That's, right. that's, not, that's just the subtitle, not the whole book. Right. Well, that uh, pretty much sums up the, <laughs> the thesis of the book, yeah. It does. Uh, uh, so, so where does your book fit into that uh, library of, of books that seem to be on, on the same topic? Well, they came out after mine, uh, so uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a little tricky for me, um, since I wasn't responding to them, mm-hmm. uh, and not that they were responding to me, but they, they come at the story with a rather different approach. Um, and, and in some ways, they're all the three of them, despite the similarity of subjects, are very different books. John Stouffer wrote uh, a dual biography of the two men, uh, and his central theme is uh, is the self-fashioning of these two men uh, within the culture of you know the self-made men of the 19th century, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I tried that actually and failed. I was, I have snippets of the biographies of two men, you know, lying uh, metaphorically around the floor of my office that I cut out because I was not able to figure out a way of formulating the book to contain two biographies and say what I wanted to say. Uh, so in that sense, there are different approaches to even book writing. Um, but I, I will say that uh, I, I, I came away from the book admiring both of these men uh, tremendously 
and uh, I ended up being uh, far less critical of Abraham Lincoln than I had expected to be. I think that um, Stouffer and the Kendrick books are more critical of Lincoln than I ended up being. Um, but yeah, that, to not be critical is sort of an unusual stance in, in modern historical writing. The uh, And the Abraham Lincoln seems to be one of the few figures that a historian can admit to admiring mm-hmm. uh, without being seen as completely naive and hopeless. But even there, there, there are those who will give you the, the, the whale eye when you say right. you admire Abraham Lincoln. Right. Um, do, do you encounter that? Yeah, I do. I do. It's, it's, there are, uh, I've thought a long time about this situation and what it is that explains it. Um, and, and I don't think it has, to be perfectly honest, I don't think it has much to do with the actual facts of American history so much as it has to do with the conditions that prevailed in the United States in the wake of the civil rights movement beginning in the 60s. I think the 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 focus of the debate in Lincoln's time was slavery and consciously slavery not race but the civil rights movement shifted the terms of debate from slavery to race and on the issue of race Lincoln seemed far less admirable than he did on the on the issue of slavery and so the the reputation declined as the focus of contemporary interests declined. That makes your, sense. your book analyzes these two men, Lincoln and Douglas, in terms of looking at their views on, on slavery right. uh, and anti-slavery politics. Right. And that's one of the distinctions you draw early on, that, that before the Civil War, uh, Lincoln was... Lincoln took a very peculiar tactical approach to the Racism of his uh, of, of his contemporaries. Right, right. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of I think Lincoln was extremely conscious, as any sentient human being would have had to be in the mid nineteenth century, of the of the prevalence of racism among a large portion of the the American electorate. He knew he knew lots of Americans and lots of therefore lots of voters were racist. And he understood that, uh, he also understood something that I think anti-slavery folks going back into the revolutionary era of the 1780s and 90s understood, that if they could keep the terms of debate focused on slavery, they could win a majority of support uh, among the voters. But if the debate shifted from slavery to race, they would lose support. And, And that that recognition played itself out in the 1850s as well. The Democrats in the North understood it as well as Abraham Lincoln understood it. So they constantly attempted to shift the terms of debate away from slavery to race, whereas the Republicans quite consciously attempted to shift the terms of debate away from race to slavery. And Lincoln was a perfectly emblematic figure in that attempt. He was a Republican. He did not want to talk about race. He tried not to talk about race. He didn't like to talk about race. And he did everything he could not to talk about race. Um, But American historians of the last 30 years 
are, for very understandable reasons, more concerned about race than they are about slavery because race is the problem that persists. Slavery is over a hundred years ago. And so there is a sense in which Eric Foner says this in his new book. There's a sense in which if you focus so intense, if you focus very intensively on Lincoln's racial attitudes, you risk distorting, distorting his history because he didn't think much about race. It wasn't a category that mattered very much to him. And, and it's race, he says, is our obsession. It wasn't Lincoln's obsession. But because it is our obsession, it has driven a lot of the way historians think about Lincoln for the past several generations. That's what I realized as I was, as I was writing the book. I didn't have the... the, the uh, well, I, I, I wasn't able to put it in as clear a, uh, a way as, as Foner has been able to put it. But. Well, you show, I think... Well, first, the quote that comes to mind is, of course, Lincoln's speech in Chicago when he says, let us discard all this quibbling about right. this race, race, that, that race, and the other race. He, he's just sick of it. He doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, but it says more than that, if you think about it carefully. It's not just that he doesn't want to talk about it. I don't think he believes in the idea. This race, that race, and the other race. Right. I think he doesn't think race is a meaningful category. When he says things like... Well, what is it? Are we talking about are we talking about color? If we're talking about color, then the the next lightest person to me has a right to enslave me. Are we talking about intellect? Well, if it's intellect, then it's the next smartest person to me that can make me a slave. So, uh, uh, he repeatedly uses language and logic that suggests to me very strongly that he didn't think the he thought the whole concept of race was bogus in in a way. Uh, and it, it, it didn't have meaning for him, but that doesn't mean he wasn't conscious of the fact that large numbers of voters did did do that, did think that way, and he had to steer his way around that fact. You know, that's interesting because the the in the last twenty years, perhaps we, we've really seen much more recognition that the. The concept of race, if, if not bogus, is at least completely constructed. Yeah, is not an innate uh, right, right. quality, and, and Lincoln anticipates that. Yes, I don't think he was the only one, but I think that's true. I, th- I, th- I think one of the problems of the of one of the problems we have with understanding Lincoln is, has to do with has nothing to do with Lincoln. It has to do with the way American historians have written the history of race in the last several generations. There is a kind of what I call racial consensus history in which there is a, an, a, 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 this thing called American society and, and uh, the racism of American society is casually invoked. And what you can't find in that way of thinking is any change over time and any debate at any given time. And I think, I think in fact, in the 1850s and 60s, there was an immense debate in the United States, not only about slavery, but a related and necessary debate about race. And and we don't recognize it because the terms of that debate aren't our terms. That is, there's, there's a racist position that we can see and hear and read in the Democratic Party. But the, but the non-racist position is the one that doesn't want to talk about race, right? And when those people in the Republican Party get control of a state legislature, anti-racist things start happening. When Republicans take control of state legislatures, schools get desegregated. You know, equal voting rights 
amendments get put on the ballots and things like that. During the Civil War, when Republicans took control of most of the northern legislatures, every northern state except one abolished its black codes. And and you'd have to believe that 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 the Thirteenth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, the Fifteenth Amendment, the 1866 Civil Rights Act, the 1875 Civil Rights Act, the Bates decision guaranteeing equal citizenship to black and white, you'd have to believe that all these things, major statutes, major amendments, major attorney general's rulings in, in favor of racial equality were an absolute accident just something that happened to happen and or of no significance unless you're willing to recognize that there was at the time a debate about race that corresponded to the debate about slavery and if you recognize that there was a debate then you start parsing the distinctions between the two sides or the various sides on in that debate and i think once we can recover that debate and recognize its existence and then evaluate its significance then i think we'll be able to see Lincoln the way Lincoln was rather than the way we look back today and think about how he ought to have been. Well, I think we'll pursue that in just a moment. We'll look a little more closely at Lincoln and how he was. We're going to take a short break right now. We'll come back in just a moment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with James Oaks on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel. Life navigation sounds simple enough, but it is really about harnessing the power of your own intuition to focus on the positive things in your life rather than the negative. Host Augustina Torgelson will help you to lead a happier life with less stress. Augustina's vision is to see a world of one community living in harmony with nature and earth. Embark on the journey of self-exploration and new opportunities. Tune in to Life Navigation every Tuesday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel. People are looking for hands-on alternatives to conventional psychotherapy. Long-term therapy and medications to treat depression and anxiety are no longer the only answer. Tune in to Holistic Answers to Mental Health with your host, Aileen Neely. Let Aileen show you the techniques of energy psychology. You'll learn some of the more effective methods being used to treat stress, anxiety, marital issues, infertility, and empowerment. Listen every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with James Oakes, author of The Radical and the Republican. It's a look at the anti-slavery thought of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, uh, respectively the Republican and the Radical, uh, or is it the other way around? We'll talk about that as we go forward here. Uh, In our first segment, we were discussing the uh, distinction between thinking on race and thinking on slavery, which are, are... often uh, compounded today and then mixed together by contemporary authors, but mattered 
uh, a great deal of separate issues, uh, certainly in the 1850s. And uh, Jim, you were mentioning how the, the, the strategy of Stephen Douglas and other Democrats was to, uh, to try to conflate the two at every opportunity to, right. to call right. the black Republicans race mixers, whereas the right. uh, Lincoln strategy was the opposite. And one of the insights from your book that really struck me was uh, the argument that Lincoln dealt with the white supremacist argument, uh, the, the, the argument that if... Uh, uh, the, the, well, the, the whites were, were superior, therefore uh, slavery was okay, uh, was simply to acknowledge it and even accept it and uh, on the grounds that it didn't matter. You say he, he disarms it by agreeing with it, saying, okay, fine, whites are better, so what? Slavery is still morally wrong. Yeah, that, uh, that, 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 that pops up a lot in uh, anti-slavery literature from the 1830s and 40s. It's, it's the, the argument that it's it's not an argument that people who are who actually believe in race or in racial superiority and inferiority uh, make because they believe it they right. will strategically say what if you're correct what if it's true that black people are inferior particularly this was true among anti-slavery uh, ministers in the north even if that's true what gives one human being the right to enslave another human being on the grounds that they're inferior. As a matter of fact, it's an even grosser violation of God's law to enslave someone weaker than yourself, someone in, you know, you're claiming to be inferior to yourself. And in a sense, what Lincoln was doing was a version of that, saying, so what, even if, it, even if it's true? You know, you know uh, it's got nothing to do with this. The issue here isn't about racial equality. That the issue here is about about uh, slavery, about one human being owning another human being as property, regardless of whether you're saying that they're inferior or superior. Now, the other character uh, that you write about, Frederick Douglass, has a very different approach. Right. Uh, and and he, uh, as you point out, the first really the first half of the book, uh, Lincoln's approach to anti-slavery politics and Douglas's approach are very, very different. Very different. Uh, and Douglas has no use for, Ab the early Douglas has no use for the early Abraham Lincoln. Well, the, yes, for a variety of reasons. Douglas, I, I, I mean, as I say in the book, it makes, to, for northern uh, blacks who became active in, in the struggle for racial equality in the north, the struggle was inseparable from the struggle against slavery in the South. They, they tied their campaign for racial equality in the northern in northern states and cities to the struggle against slavery. They couldn't see the two as separate, and it it makes a certain amount of sense when you think about it. After all, only blacks are enslaved, and even if slavery isn't simply a form of racial discrimination, the truth of the matter is that only black people are enslaved, and there is clearly a connection. There is a racial component to slavery in the United States that makes the struggle against racism in the North hard to separate, hard for us today to distinguish from the, the struggle uh, uh, against slavery. And for black Americans like Frederick Douglass, it made no sense to do what Lincoln was and the Republicans were trying to do. So he was very suspicious of the whole Republican Party enterprise and of Abraham Lincoln in particular, precisely because of the strategy they were pursuing of separating slavery from race as two distinct issues. 
His strategy uh, initially shaped by his, his connections with William Lloyd Garrison and, and later on his own was, uh, was, was as you call him, uh, the, the radical strategy. He was the reformer. He was not right. interested in working out some sort of political solution. He wanted change, and he wanted it now. Right, right. Well, he does. He, there's a big shift there, but the shift is interesting. Uh, in, in some ways, he moves, there's a way in which he moves from one extreme to the other. One of the things historians who write about antebellum politics repeatedly impress upon us is, is that politics was fought out in constitutional language, that constitutionalism was was the way people thought when they took issues in anything. Is the Bank of the United States constitutional? You know, can a, you know, is, is anti-slavery constitutional? Can the federal government constitutionally interfere with slavery in the states? Douglas goes from Garrison's position, which is that the pro- Constitution is pro-slavery and needs to be burned in public, and the only solution to the problem is for the free states to divorce themselves by seceding from the Union and constituting themselves as an independent nation completely committed to freedom. He he eventually realizes, Douglas, that, that even if that's technically true, that the Constitution is a pro-slavery document, it is of little use as a way of getting slavery abolished. It would just leave the slave states free to do whatever they wanted to do. And, and he becomes increasingly interested in the rising tide of anti-slavery politics in the Liberty Party in the early 1840s and the Free Soil Party of the late 1840s, and then ultimately in the rise of an anti-slavery Republican Party. And he, in the middle of that development in around 1850, he abandons the Garrisonian position and takes what might be called the opposite extreme position, which is that the Constitution is not only not a pro-slavery document, it is actually an anti-slavery document. That, And as such, it not only empowers the federal government to abolish slavery in the states where it exists, it, it, it morally obligates the federal government to do so. And so when he criticizes Lincoln and the Republicans, he's doing it from an assumption about the Constitution that is very, very distinctive and different from the way most Americans thought about the Constitution. Most of them were in between that Douglas position and the Garrison position. But either position will result in harsh criticism of the people in the middle, and Lincoln was one of the people in the middle. Well, you know, we're, as I was reading this book, I was thinking very much of the, the contemporary situation. Uh, the Garrisonians rejected politics altogether. The electoral politics is not the way to solve anything, and you just burn the Constitution. Douglas, when he joins uh, or supports the Liberty Party or the Free Soil Party, is still going with a, a third party that is pure in principle and uh, idealistic and has absolutely no chance of ever winning any significant amount of power. Right. So it's really not serious electoral politics, but it's still... Uh, well, it, it, I would say it's more serious than... Uh, it's a little more serious than that, that the people who were doing this weren't naive. Mm-hmm. They did understand that they were building a movement, that these were stages in the development of that building process, so that they would just keep going until they found the the approach to anti-slavery that would garner the largest constituency and ultimately allow them to emerge victorious. And I would say they did a good job of it, that the strategists like Salmon Chase and William Seward did understand that it was possible to frame an anti-slavery message 
in ways that ultimately could, under the right circumstances, produce uh, an anti-slavery victory at, nas- at the national level. And, 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 and Douglas has sort of understood that this was the goal, and that's why he didn't simply turn away from electoral politics. He was fascinated by this process and watched it develop. And I think, in some ways, he changed his mind about the Constitution because he did realize that, that uh, you, you know, by the logic of, of Garrison's argument, you can't engage in politics because the whole system is entirely corrupted by a, a pro-slavery Constitution, and you're just going to be dirty just in the process of of participating. He shifts on the Constitution in part because he's shifting his belief in his convictions about the possibilities of an anti-slavery politics. So he he does come to see that there there is such a possibility, and as you say, then the the Liberty and Free Soil parties are intermediate steps toward toward gaining a majority, a political majority. But there are certainly there are others who who, who take this non-political approach. Garrison is one, and another one who, who Douglas admires is John Brown, right. who acts completely outside the political system and says right. we got to go straight to revolutionary violence. Yes, that's that's I think is is a function of uh, of Douglas had a a romantic strain in him, uh, a strain that that divided the world into heroes and villains, and and Brown was for him a hero. A heroic person, and and he was in a certain sense uh, his his tendency toward hero worship, which wasn't consistent and it wasn't dominant, but it was there. It's an impulse he had, uh, blinded him to some of the less attractive aspects of Brown's character. It also is an indication. I think I think it's also an indication of the degree to which, for him. The issue of racial equality was so important that the unwillingness of the Republicans, almost uniformly, for strategic reasons, but also for ideological reasons, to come out and say we are in favor of racial equality, um, left him with. There were very few people left. If you're if you're going to demand people who, if you're only going to end up supporting people who will come straight out and say, I believe that blacks and whites should be equal, there are not many people left who fit the bill, you know, which, that's why I say when you, and, and John Brown was one of them, and so for, he may have been, uh, you know, a zealot in certain ways, and he may have done things that Douglas himself would never have done, but nevertheless, he was a principled advocate of racial equality, and for that reason, he he remained an admirer of him to the end of his days. The, the You made the observation that Douglas saw things in a romantic worldview. There were heroes, there were villains, and when you see things in, in that light, uh, then there is little room for compromise. Uh, I mean, villains need to be killed, uh, or at least defeated, uh, not co-opted, not agreed with, not compromised with. And, and that's a in contrast, of, that's, you, Lincoln is different. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's a, that, that's one of the things, that's a kind of temperamental difference between him and Lincoln that also, I think, prevented him from, from uh, or... or kept him suspicious of Lincoln and on guard about Lincoln for a longer period of time than was than than might have might have otherwise been the case. Uh Lincoln was temperamentally 
he didn't live in a world of heroes and villains. He accepted the universality of human frailties, human foibles. He didn't believe that Northerners were intrinsically more moral or more virtuous than Southerners. He said on several occasions that that if you know if we were raised in the South and we grew up in those circumstances, we would do and say exactly the same things that those people said. So he never went along with the tendency among some abolitionists to denounce slaveholders as sinners, to focus on the horrors uh, that are perpetrated on slaves, the barbaric aspects of the slave system. He wasn't interested in castigating Southerners that way and because it was just not in his nature to divide the world into heroes and villains. So, since it was for Douglas, at least in the 1850s, Douglas did not uh, rush to Lincoln's support, did not vote for uh, or express support for, for Lincoln in the 1860 election. In 1860, yes. His position uh, was, was complicated and interesting and frustrating. He ended up saying, look, I support the Republican Party. I want the Republican Party to win. I want it to defeat the slave power and all that slavery has allied against it. But I just can't bring myself to cast a vote for Abraham Lincoln. Not at this point. So we've got this. this uh, uh, you know, that's a, that's an interesting. That that uh, it, take it out of its context, and it sounds like it sounds different from it looks in the context of where he had come from twenty years earlier, when it wouldn't have even been conceivable for him to vote for any presidential candidate because of his Garrisonian contempt for the entire political system. He is uh, the fact that he is saying this about Lincoln, that he's going to cast his vote for another anti-slavery candidate, that he wants the Republicans to win, is is an indication of where he has moved, not not an indication of where he would always be. A lot of Lincoln scholarship talks about Lincoln's growth and, and change over time, and, right. and uh, uh, your book very much shows the same thing about Douglas. Right. Um, Right. You know, Douglas was disappointed in Lincoln's first inaugural address, uh, and, and was really sure disappointed with the first two years of the presidency. Right. I, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I the, here is where I think it, the the issue dividing, uh, separating uh, Douglas from Lincoln has less to do with temperament and race and has more to do with constitutionalism. I, I really do think that Douglas came into the war persuaded, that absolutely convinced that the Constitution gave the federal government all the authority it needed to, to absolutely and completely, immediately and unconditionally abolish slavery everywhere, and the fact that Lincoln and the Republicans would not do it was a source of immense frustration to him. Uh, and, and that, I think, more than I even realized when I wrote the book, that the constitutional position he took was in some ways a setup for frustration. Whereas, look what happened to Douglas, I mean, to um, to Garrison over the course of the war. He came into the war assuming that the Constitution gave the federal government no authority whatsoever. It rendered the federal government absolutely powerless to do anything whatsoever about slavery. And then he watched as the federal government made increasingly aggressive moves against slavery and became very rapidly and increasingly to admire Lincoln 
and by 1864 is tutting and chastising his fellow abolitionists for not appreciating what has gone on in the last four years, how he never expected that this kind of thing could happen. Whereas Douglas came into the war assuming a lot more could have been done a lot earlier and frustrated by the fact that Lincoln hadn't done it. Well, well, the... uh the the key point to this, of course, is the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. Um, right. And and here you see, uh, well, it, it's a big topic. Let's hold off on that for just a minute. We'll come back in a few moments and talk more about emancipation, about anti-slavery politics, and about the remarkable relationship between Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Talking today with James Oakes, author of The Radical and the Republican. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Cotton Radio is a unique program designed for leaders in apparel and retail businesses and college students. Our program will take you inside the cotton industry, including production, design and engineering of cotton fabrics, innovative uses for cotton, and marketing and merchandising products that have made cotton the fiber of choice. Your hosts are Philadelphia University professors Stephen Frumkin, Natalie Nixon, and Neoka Wyatt. Tune in to Cotton Radio on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific and rebroadcast weekly on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a student? Maybe you've just started going back to school or are thinking about it. If you're interested in adult education, tune in to Learning as an Adult with your host, John Steely. Our program will cover topics you can use if you're a current or future student in any learning environment. You can be learning online or in a classroom. Either way, John will help you with problems, issues, and concerns facing students every single day. Tune in to Learning as an Adult with John Steely every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with James Oakes, author of The Radical and the Republican. It's a book that covers the development of anti-slavery thought in uh, the minds of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln before, during, and in, in Douglass's case, after the Civil War. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the Triumph of Anti-Slavery Politics. That's the full subtitle. Uh, in our last segment, we were discussing the evolution of the views, uh, the, of, especially of Douglass's views on the power of the Constitution, um, which he, he initially believed gave Lincoln all the weapons he needed, but Lincoln, of course, did not see it that way. Uh, and this leads, in the early part of the Civil War, to a lot of uh, rather critical writing, very critical writing by Douglas about Lincoln, which, uh, ironically, really comes to a, a climax almost in August and September 1862, uh, the time between Lincoln's announcement to his cabinet that he has drafted an Emancipation Proclamation 
and the moment when it's safe to issue that proclamation after the Union victory of, of sorts at Antietam, uh, that that's a very interesting two month period there, uh, where where we see the evolution of both parties, uh, Lincoln playing anti-slavery politics, and Douglas unaware of what Lincoln has in his back pocket and growing increasingly frustrated. Right, right. It is a, a lot of things. A lot of things do happen uh, that that profoundly affect the way Douglas looks at looks at Lincoln and is he he looks at Lincoln's actions in those two months in ways that leave him I think unprepared for the announcement in September of the, of the preliminary proclamation and uh, it's easy to see why he would think that I mean he he's looking he's looking at what Lincoln is doing and Lincoln is being very cagey he's a very shrewd politician he sends this letter this famous letter to Horace Greeley in which he says you know, look, my primary purpose is, and always has been, uh, not to abolish slavery, but to restore the Union. And if I can do that best by abolishing, uh, by freeing all the slaves, that's what I would do. And if I can do it by freeing none of the slaves, best I would do it that way. And if I can do it best by freeing some but not all the slaves, that's what I would do. Douglas reads that as a renunciation of emancipation. And, and, and I read that as a very shrewd public relations ploy on Lincoln's part to to open the to put on the table the possibility of universal emancipation in a way that it had not been on the table before in American public. Because if you think about it, uh, you could read it as three straightforward options, right? These are my options. But the truth is, they aren't his options. Slavery has already been abolished in Washington, D.C. It's already been banned from the territories, and tens of thousands of slaves have already been emancipated under the terms of, of the Confiscation Act. He cannot, therefore, end the war without freeing any slaves. It's not really an option, even though he's acting as though it is one. He has also said a hundred times, if uh, virtually a hundred times, metaphorically, that, that neither he nor Congress has any power to abolish slavery in any of the states that are still loyal to the Union. So he cannot constitutionally bring the war to a close by abolishing slavery in a state like Maryland or Delaware or Kentucky or Missouri, which is not at war with the Union. Right? So the third, th- that other option of of ending the war by abolishing slavery everywhere is not an option either. You know, the only real option is that he can emancipate some slaves and not others. But he's framing it in political terms that will open emancipation up as a political possibility to the public because he wants that to happen and he's, he knows he's going to release that proclamation pretty soon and it's going to cause trouble for a lot of people. But Douglas reads it as the renunciation of the whole idea of emancipation. So he's not prepared for what's coming in the next month. The worst thing for Douglas and, the, and really one of the worst things Lincoln did as president was in August to bring into the White House a group of, uh, of black leaders from the Washington, D.C. area, mostly ministers, and treat them to an extraordinarily condescending lecture on why they should take the lead in organizing their fellow African Americans to voluntarily emigrate somewhere outside the United States, um, and, and came very close to suggesting that the black people were the cause of the war by their mere presence here. That, as you can well imagine, uh, uh, threw Douglas into a fit of rage about what Lincoln was doing. Uh, uh, and, and, and since in Douglas' mind, in Douglas's mind, uh, what Lincoln did was patently racist, and since 
racism was so closely and tied to, even inseparable from slavery. He called racism the spirit of slavery. He took Lincoln's racist, what he viewed to be Lincoln's racist remarks about colonization as evidence that he couldn't possibly be interested in emancipation. Right? So Douglas was was very, very frustrated in August of 1862, listening to the things Lincoln was saying, watching the things Lincoln was doing. He thought it was absolutely inconceivable that this person could have issued a could, was going to issue an Emancipation Proclamation a month later. And if you look at the world from his eyes, from the way things looked, from his, from where he was sitting and who he was, it made perfect sense for him to think those things and to be angry. You know, it was disgraceful what Lincoln did uh, in that meeting. What what uh, what is interesting to me about this is that Douglas has the excuse that he didn't know what was coming, but it is really uh, distressing from a historian's point of view how many people today still use the Greeley letter of Lincoln as an argument that Lincoln was in fact not interested in emancipation, uh, that he was right. his purpose was only to save the Union. This is a much broader problem. I think that I, uh, this is this is a general problem among historians. I think that. Uh, uh, I think that just as we don't recognize the debate over race, we don't recognize the debate between Northern Democrats and Republicans over the relationship between slavery and the Union. There were, broadly speaking, two very different positions on the table from the beginning of the war about the relationship between slavery and the Union. And the Democratic Party's position was, the war Democrats anyway, this is a war to restore the Union, period. Slavery has nothing to do with it. The Republican Party's position was much more subtle, and it was, this is a war, yes, this is a war primarily to save the Union, but it is a war caused by slavery, it is a war in which slavery, we cannot ignore the issue of slavery, and it is a war which, so long as it continues, is going to doom slavery, and should doom slavery. So, in the Republican Party's mind, and in Lincoln's mind, the war for the Union was inseparable from the war against slavery, even though they never, never said this is, this is a war for the Union to the exclusion of slavery. But they always admitted and always said right until 1864, long after they were committed to emancipation, long after they were committed to the 13th Amendment, absolutely abolishing slavery everywhere, they were still saying this is primarily a war to restore the Union. So I think that when I th I I think that historians don't recognize the degree to which the those two positions were very different from one another from the start of the war to the end of the war. Uh, you could you can line up as many statements from Republicans at the beginning of the war saying this is a war about emancipation this is a war about slavery, as you can line up statements from Republicans at the end of the war saying this is a war for the restoration of the Union, because at every moment of the war from beginning to end, they believed both things. Now, in, in, when you say that historians don't recognize that argument, uh, I would agree with that, certainly, but also perhaps you're being overly generous with some people who choose to look at things differently. And I'm saying this because in this morning's newspaper, there was a syndicated columnist, uh, Walter Williams, uh, economist uh, of rather extreme views, uh, published a, a column on the black confederates and, and how their their heritage is being disrespected. Uh, the the thousands of, of 
soldiers uh, that he claims existed, uh, soldiers of color who fought for the Confederacy. He acknowledges in the column that, of course, uh, no historian recognizes these soldiers existed since they didn't. Uh, but that's because we historians are all engaged in a vast conspiracy to conceal Abraham Lincoln's desire to expand the federal government, which led him to create the Civil War. I mean, that's how nutty it gets. Um, but but it's, it's out there in the public, and I bring it up particularly because he, he quotes uh, a favorite quote of the Black, Black Confederate movement, is Frederick Douglass uh, writing a paragraph in which he says the South is using their uh, black men, uh, and Lincoln should do the same. Right. Right. But your book also both quotes that paragraph, but it also has another quote where Lincoln, uh, or Douglas rather, says, uh, there are no black rebels. That's right. Um, That's right. Now here's Douglas saying two completely different things. Uh, uh, he is and he isn't. He is saying correctly that the Confederacy is using black labor you know, in the army mm-hmm. to sustain the rebellion. That is a fact. No historian I know of denies that fact. Right. But he is also saying that no... No Southern slaves are actively supporters of the Confederate rebellion, and that I mean, there's no way to know for sure. How do we know if that's the case? But, but, but that those two statements are not contradictory. Mm-hmm. Here, I think here I think historians haven't done as good a job as they could do of of clarifying the issue because in some in some ways I feel like these two sides are talking past one another. Uh, the issue that a historian whom I admire greatly, like Bruce Levine, mm-hmm. is talking about something very specific. Did the Confederate government enlist slaves, not blacks, enlist mm-hmm. slaves into the Confederate army, arm them, and put them into battle, promising them emancipation? And the answer to that is unequivocally no until the, like the last two weeks right. of the war the when, when, when it, it was too late and it didn't pan out anyway, right? Mm-hmm. That is absolutely correct. He would not deny, I think, that from the very beginning of the war, the Confederate Army was using, impressing the service of black slaves into, you know, bringing them into, you know, the, the camps and to the, to the fortifications to use them to, rein, you know, as, to do the dirty work. Mm-hmm. For, the US, for the for the Confederate Army, that is absolutely true. There is also a separate third question of what the position of free blacks in the South was during the Civil War. That's that's a trickier question because there you do have the the New Orleans Home Guard people, mm-hmm. you know, a group of of free blacks in New Orleans who initially offer their services to the Confederate Army, but the Confederacy turns them down. But they're turned down, right. So if the issue is, were there blacks who supported the Confederacy, the answer is, yeah, there were some blacks. It, were there slaves who were drafted into the Confederate Army and armed for battle? The answer is no. If the, if the question is, did the Confederate Army use blacks for the purposes of sustaining the rebellion, everybody understands the answer to be yes. And I think right. people are talking past one another by choosing which body of evidence they want to invoke, I think. I, 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 think, I don't think Bruce Levine is doing that. I think he's no. very careful and specific about what he's saying. I think the people who are arguing for black Confederates are very carefully and deliberately obscuring these distinctions so as to make it look as though there was a large 
body of black support for the Confederacy. That's, that makes no sense whatsoever. Impressing, no. as a matter of fact, the evidence we have suggests that uh, the work they were asked to do was so, so filthy, so dangerous, they got so sick from being forced to work in hot swamps day in and day out and, and, and were abused that they would write letters to their owners begging them to come and get them and take them back. You could read those letters and say, you see, they loved their masters and stuff like that. Nobody denies that the Confederate government did this, mm-hmm. you know, that was using these people, and that's what Frederick Douglass is referring to. They are using black labor to sustain the rebellion. Why aren't we using black labor to suppress the rebellion? Exactly. Well, we're, unfortunately, as always happens far too soon, out of time. Uh, Douglas and Lincoln met on three occasions. The readers, you'll have to get the book to read about those. Uh, it, it's well worth your time to read a very lucid and, and uh, just fascinating book uh, that I highly recommend. Jim, thanks so much for being on the show today. It was my pleasure. It's good talking to you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management 